Good morning. <clears throat> thank you all for being here on a wintry day, and thank you uh, to Rebecca and Elizabeth and everybody else at uh, uh, Art Education for the Blind and at the Met for organizing this. Oh, look, this goes this way. Okay. <clears throat> My apologies to the interpreters if I go a little fast. I have been asked to talk here today on the topic of blind identity and to reflect on how it might impact access to the visual arts. This may seem paradoxical since we typically speak of blindness as something that takes away from or diminishes identity. For instance, we speak of losing sight but never of gaining blindness, except perhaps in terms of the mytho mythological, supernatural, extrasensory, compensatory powers blind people are supposed to have. But before I get to my topic, I would like to describe something that happens to me, which I suspect has all but also happened to many in this room. I say, I'm going to a conference at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. The person I'm addressing says, oh really, with a certain spark of interest. Suddenly I find myself elevated in the person's esteem through my assumed <coughs> association with this world-renowned institution in this great metropolitan city. The person goes on to ask, what is the conference about? And I say, blind access to the visual arts. And then it happens. <laughs> it's hard to describe, but hard to miss. There's a slight intake of breath, perhaps accompanied by a look of incredulity or a blank expression, while a large question mark sprouts from above the person's head. <laughs> so I go on ra rapidly to, odd, to add, <clears throat> the conference is organized by an organization called Art Education for the Blind, hoping to reassure the person that there is an organization. <laughs> Responsible, trained professionals in charge. I continue, there will be people from museums all around the world. But it's already too late. <laughs> My interlocutor will lower her voice, lean forward, perhaps Caution, uh, place a cautioning hand on my arm and say, now wait a minute. When you talk about blind access, you're talking about people like you, you know, people who are only par partially blind, people who remember being sighted. You're not talking about people who are really blind, <laughs> blind since birth, totally blind. <clears throat> My use of the word blind to encompass the widest possible range of visual impairments has a history which I perhaps do not need to re rehearse here, but I will anyway. <laughs> the National Federation for the Blind, among other organizations, has long held that calibrating distinctions between the totally congenitally blind, <clears throat> the adventitiously blind, the visually impaired, the partially sighted, and so forth, actually diminishes the impact of a group <clears throat> of admittedly diverse individuals who nevertheless share common social, educational, and vocational goals. 
we know that total congenital blindness is a relatively rare occurrence in the industrialized world today. Furthermore, furthermore we know that blind adults who might be consumers of access programs are self-selecting. It's safe to assume that a recently blinded person still traumatized by the, by the loss of sight, whether total or partial, will probably not seek out these programs first thing. So statistically speaking, when I talk about blind access, I am in fact talking about people like me. Here's where I get into my blind identity. I was not born blind, but became blind at about the age of 11. I am not totally blind. The technical designation for someone like me is legally blind with some usable sight. Legality, as you know, comes into it in that my impairment is severe enough to make me eligible for state and federal educational and rehabilitation programs. The some usable sight aspect of my blind identity is a bit murkier. I can see something. For instance, I can distinguish light from darkness, can identify most colors, and can uh, perceive form with a re reasonable de degree of accuracy. I cannot perceive fine details such as print on a page or features on a face. Forms appear amorphous with unstable outlines that seem always on the verge of blending into their surroundings. While these particularities of my impairment are not unusual, there are some aspects to my blind identity which might make me atypical. For one thing, I already know a lot about visual art. Both my parents were visual artists, so I grew up surrounded by their work, their materials, and tools. Even more significantly, I grew up surrounded by their talk. I spent a lot of my childhood in artist studios, art galleries, and museums, and heard what artists had to say about each other's work and the world in general. Still, the knowledge I claim to have of visual art is based merely, uh, mostly on hearsay, primarily what I've heard said and read about it. My first-hand experience of art is limited, except, of course, for those works that I have been allowed to touch. Incidentally, it has been my experience that artists are a lot less squeamish about people touching their art than are art conservators. Without name dropping, <laughs> I will admit here today that my fingerprints are all over any number of works of mid-20th century American work on display in museums and pi uh, private collections around the world. <laughs> on top of what I know about visual art, I also know a good deal about vision. Having written extensively about blindness, I have studied the human visual, uh, visual system. I can name all the parts of the eyeball. Can I uh, describe all the conditions which impair sight? Can identify the regions of the brain responsible for vision and cite major research studies? 
Another complicating factor to my blind identity, however, is while I know a lot about vision and visual art, or at least can converse with some semblance of knowledge on these subjects, my own vision is not at the forefront of my consciousness. In everyday situations, at work, at home, and traveling to and fro, I hardly ever rely on my residual vision. The residual vision I have is so inadequate and unreliable that it would be unwise and unsafe for me to depend on it in those contexts. In fact, the only situation when I regularly rely on my residual vision is when I come to an art museum. Saying this can give the mistaken impression that I can turn my vision on and off as if it were a binary system. People might wonder why, if I can use my eyes to look at a painting, I don't use them to read the print on my computer screen. The answer is that my computer's synthesized voice allows me to perform that task more efficiently and painlessly than my eyes will ever do. As yet, there is no analogous technology for looking at art, which is why I'm interested in programs which can enhance my impaired perceptions. Note that in defining my blind identity, the degree of sight loss is only one of many factors. Equally significant is the age of onset, as well as what we might call visual interest or literacy. There are people both blind and sighted, who are simply not that interested in visual art and visual matters. I will assume that none of them is here today, <laughs> and so we'll refer to them disparagingly. <laughs> and in any case, all of this is probably more information than my concerned interlocutor wants to know about me. So perhaps it would be best to just simply to say that no, when I'm talking about blind access, I'm not talking about those blind people, the totally congenitally blind people, the truly blind, <laughs> the pure blind. I'm talking about people like me, the adventitiously blind, the visually impaired with some usable sight and prior knowledge of visual art, the legally blind who admit to the illegal touching of art. But what if I am talking about those blind people? What, if anything, does that change? After all, I know congenitally blind people who would be interested in visual art if given the right opportunities. And we all know the dangers of creating a hierarchy of impairment, pitting those who can be accommodated with minimal effort and expense against those for whom accommodation requires more ingenuity. I prefer to start from the premise that a totally congenitally blind person, a, a totally congenitally blind person, even one who has never had any visual perception at all, can still conceptualize facets of visual experience. I believe that even those blind people have some understanding of, the, of these things because they live in the same visual culture as the rest of us. They grew up, attended school, and work among sighted people. They read books, listen to radio, television, and movies 
and inhabit architecture created by and for sighted people. In fact, I would argue that the average totally congenitally blind person knows infinitely more about what it means to be sighted than the average sighted person knows about what it means to be blind. But even if we're talking about a totally congenitally blind person who has led an especially isolated life, what would be so terrible about explaining aspects and concepts relevant to visual art? How, for instance, does linear perspective work? What is its effect on the viewer? What values do we ascribe to different colors? Why do we speak of warm and cool colors when to the touch the pigments would have the same temperature? What do we mean when we say a portrait is a good likeness? How does a good likeness differ from caricature? And what about abstraction? And what about conceptual art, where the points seem to be more about the idea than the technical execution? Note that these questions all center on the effect and meaning of different, fe different visual features. Let's zero in on one of those features, color. Is it possible to talk about color to someone who has never seen it? It would be next to impossible for a totally congenitally blind child not to encounter the names of colors in storybooks, school lessons, and conversations. Parents and teachers must employ a good deal of imagination to explain the meanings of these words, but fortunately there is an abundance of color-related idioms to provide accessible associations. For example, the blind child may learn that grass is green, and also that it is greener on the other side of the fence. <laughs> but she will also learn that there are other shades of the color associated with other objects, such as limes, acids, olive, olives, bottles. Later, in science class, she will learn why grass and other plants are green, and what it means when they turn some other color, such as yellow or brown. She will learn that while greenness in a fr fruit may, may denote unripeness, in a vegetable it may indicate freshness and vitamin content. She may learn that while Martians are said to be green, earthlings do not come in this color, though may be said to appear green when seasick or envious. <laughs> Indeed, according to Shakespeare, envy is a green-eyed monster. The child may learn that green paint can be produced by mixing equal parts of yellow and blue, and that green light has a measurable wavelength, a bit shorter than blue light and a bit longer than red. It's true that this blind child's knowledge of green is based pr uh, primarily on rote memorization. But the same could be said about the sighted child who can physically perceive the color, but acquires these other associations through sources outside her own perception. And it is these associations that should allow us to talk about the effect of a particular shade of green used by whatever artist we may be discussing. There is another question worth considering, however. Is it really necessary? Oh, sorry, skipped a line. 
once we've figured out a way to talk about art without making patronizing assumptions about the people who may be listening, is it really necessary for the blind person to come to the museum? A blind acquaintance whom I assume to be totally blind and suspect has been that way since childhood, if not since birth, has told me that he has used museum audio guides on several occasions. He said that he enjoyed the historical and biographical content. He liked knowing something about the artists and their place in art history. But he wondered if he wouldn't have gotten the same benefits if he had obtained the recordings and listened to them at home. It's true that a crowded, noisy museum does not always make for optimum listening. Keeping up with a docent or manipulating a playback de device while also handling a white cane or service dog can be frustrating. So why not just stay home? Historically, the blind and people with other disabilities have heard this question too many times. <clears throat> Society still seems to send the message, especially to newly disabled people, that the correct response is a smiling acceptance of one's new limitations and a cheerful abandonment of old interests and activities. Fortunately, the disability rights movement has challenged the st just stay home messages. In some sense, when blind people show up at an art museum, we are asserting our right to a place in this society and, uh, and an access to its public institutions. Our mere presence in these spaces uh, alters, however incrementally, the image of the typical museum goer. And with this altered image comes the possibility that access can be understood as a two-way rather than a one-way street. True access involves not only what the blind person gets from the art museum, but also what the art museum gets from the blind person. Surely anyone producing audio description for blind people will be compelled to think deeply about what it means to look at art. But the blind museum patron provides more than a convenient sounding board for the sighted service provider. <clears throat> we need to abandon the stereotype of blindness as an absence, a vacancy, a gaping black hole of helplessness and need. Instead, we should consider the possibility that blind people can be both consumers and producers of art. <clears throat> To do this, we need to remind ourselves of the many ways that museums function in societies. A museum is more than a repository to preserve and protect culturally valued artifacts. It is also an educational institution providing information to the general public and to future artists. Long before there were art academies and MFA programs, aspiring artists visited museums to gain a sense of their visual heritage and to pick up technical tips. If we provide meaningful intellectual access to museums, we should be hoping that some portion of that population will become artists in the future. If the visual arts represent a pinnacle of human self-expression, then the blind too, given the right cultural opportunities, have selves 
worthy of expression. Again, my concerned interlocutor leans forward, grasps my arm, and says, now wait a minute. When you talk about blind artists, you're not talking about people who are really blind. You're talking about people who, artists who used to be sighted and still have some sight. Surely a totally congenitally blind person couldn't produce, <coughs> even aided by knowledge gained through access programs now becoming available, would not be able to, to produce art, real art, art that was anything more than a novelty or some kind of misguided therapy. After all, how would, they, how would they be able to judge what they were doing? At best, they would have to rely on some sighted assistant. And then wouldn't the artwork they produced really be the product of the sighted person? Shouldn't the blind person seek to satisfy her artistic impulses through the uh, time-honored media already accessible to the blind, music and literature? And if she really had to do something in the visual arena, wouldn't she most naturally gravitate towards sculpture? <clears throat> While it's true that the vast majority of blind artists working in the, day, in the world today and exhibiting in a growing number of shows uh, <clears throat> are people who are artists who were formerly sighted or else have some residual vi vision. So statistically speaking, I could say that yes, when I'm talking about blind artists, I'm talking about adventitiously visually impaired artists with some usable sight and or visual memory and or prior history of art practice. But what if I am talking about those blind people? What if I'm imagining a future where real blind people could create real art? What would that art look like? Or would the look of it be the most relevant aspect? Suppose the blind artist I'm imagining was creating sculpture meant to be experienced both visually and tactually as she experienced it. What materials would she have to use? How should the museum display it? Should the museum hand out blindfolds to sighted visitors? Would we need to expand our vocabulary to describe this new aesthetic experience? And how would these previously unstudied tactile aesthetics expand outward from the realm of the fine arts to inform other aspects of the culture? The point is this. When you open up the culture, the culture changes. Access needs to be understood as something more than an act of generosity or charity. If we can abandon the idea that blindness can only diminish, damage, or destroy identity and, ad and adopt instead uh, a notion that blindness, in, uh, the, the experience of blindness in all its varieties can in fact shape and inform other aspects of personality and personal history, we will be me moving towards a more genuinely inclusive society. The integration of blind perceptions and experience will change the fundamental assumptions of the culture, change the way the human condition is defined. And this, I believe, is the goal worth working for. Thank you.